Well, good morning, Applewood family. I don't have any glasses. Teresa, to the rescue. That's just not my color, Jill. It's just not my color. Whew, that's better. You know, it's a good thing my head is attached. I'd leave it laying somewhere, too. Man. Some of you know the name Robert McQuilkin. That might be familiar to you. He was, for many years, president of Columbia International University. Read a story this week that <clears throat> he tells about visiting his son in India. His boy was working and living in the slums of Calcutta. And, and as it turns out, he was really not living and working too far away from uh, the ministry of the Sisters of Charity, which we know that uh, Mother Teresa began decades ago. So Dr. McQuilkin was a seasoned world traveler, but he, uh, he describes the scene in the taxi cab where he looked out, windows open on a hot, humid day, the squalor of poverty that he witnessed on that drive from the airport simply overwhelmed him. He says the smells of humanity and sewer water combined with Millions of people living on the streets brought him to tears. His taxi driver noticed that he was tearful and asked him. Dr. McWilkin told him why he had tears in his eyes, to which the driver responded, Oh, don't worry, sir. In a few days, you'll get used to it. To which Dr. McWilkin responded, that's exactly what I don't want to happen. I don't ever want to get used to something like this. <coughs> we humans, uh, we, have, we have an incredible capacity, don't we, to, to cope with difficult things. You know, and it's one thing to, to cope in a way that, that helps us get through and, and, and push on and, and survive. But I think it's another thing, and, and I would add probably a very unhealthy thing, when we have coped in such a way as to get used to something that we're so used to it that we're, we're no longer moved by it. We're no longer concerned by it. And, and we resign ourselves to think, well, that is just the way things are. As followers of Christ, we certainly understand that we live in a fallen, broken world. Oh my, is it ever broken? Fallen and broken, but, but the impact that, that fallenness has upon human beings ought to be something that we, that we never block out and to which we never become numb or dulled <clears throat> simply because that's the way things are. Dr. McQuilkin's response to the brokenness that he saw in Calcutta, I think is a good response. I think it's kind of a Lenten response, if you will. I've been thinking about it through the lens of, of this 40-day season we've begun. Yesterday was day four. Tomorrow is day five. How does that work, you wonder? Well, because the church has never counted Sundays as days in Lent. The days of Lent call us to, to reflect upon 
the sacrifice of Jesus for all humanity. He did what was necessary to bring change to lives everywhere for all who put their faith in him. And we must not be so familiar with these truths that we pass these Lenten days with a kind of ho-hum attitude. We wouldn't do that on purpose, but it can happen because we are just used to the way things are. But Lent is a call to be different. The reason that Sundays are not included in the 40-day count is they are always, always, always to be a celebration, a proclamation of the good news of what Jesus has done for those who put their faith in him. Things don't have to be the way they are. Jesus has made a difference. A celebration of the good news that he announced in the kingdom of God that he proclaimed, words on our screen that have been the starting point for each Sunday. That is what Jesus was about. And we have said again and again that, that followers of Jesus are people who through the power of the Spirit have changed their thinking about God, about themselves, and about others. That's the repentance piece. Jesus' call to repent. And we need to always be alert to, to what it is that Jesus is doing in us and through us and around us, believing in Him and what He came to do. It's easy for us to get used to life in a broken world and forget who is our Lord, what He has come to do, and what He has invited us to do in mission with Him. In the words of Dr. McQuilkin, that is exactly uh, what, what we want to do. We, we want to live with expectation that He is always up to something. Because you know what? He is always up to something. He really is. God never naps. He's never tired. You know, he doesn't oversleep his alarm. He's never late to work. He doesn't take time off. Our God is always at work. And Jesus comes living out the life of God and the values of the kingdom of God in this world that so desperately needs to see and experience it. We've seen this again and again, haven't we? In our journey through Mark, Jesus stirs things up. <laughs> I love it. Because he brings new life. And here's the thing. He makes no apology to his followers for the radical ways in which the kingdom of God, the values of the kingdom of God, collide with their lives, with the cultural values that, that they are a part of in that human kingdom. Former Duke University prof and theologian Stanley Auerwas says, It's hard to remember that Jesus did not come to make us safe, but rather to make us disciples, citizens of God's new kingdom, new age, and a kingdom of surprise. I love that. Kingdom of surprise. When is the last time that you and I were surprised at something that God did? Not because we didn't expect it, 
But because we want to be people who live with expectancy, but then the surprise of how he does it is just, oh, that is so cool. I want more of that. Lent is an invitation to us to remember that this is who our God is about. And Jesus came into this world to take care of the sin problem of the human heart that keeps us from living with just a reckless abandon to self and all-out love to God and to others. So what surprise does Mark have for us this morning? Well, once again, we find Jesus in an area that's heavily populated with Gentiles. Now that probably shouldn't surprise us, but once again, I think it baffles his first century followers. I can just hear them murmuring, you know, under their breath. Why does he love these stinking Gentiles so much? What is with this Messiah to the Jews, Messiah to, to God's people? In the words of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman that we heard, why is he hanging out with the dogs? Why does he care for them? So coincidence then in the order of Mark's gospel that, that after Jesus put it to the religious authorities, you remember about their, their fences around the law, their, their purity laws, their, their concerns about ritual cleanness. He trampled those fences in his encounter with them. And then with the Syrophoenician woman, he records Jesus <clears throat> and, and his, his defiance of the categories, if you will in order to, to, to bring that woman hope and restoration in her family. So Mark's first three words of chapter 8, uh, in those days, ties us to where he has been immediately in those encounters and, and what, what he was doing. So we're going to stand and we're going to read partway through. We're going to pause I want to just make a few comments, and then we'll read the rest, okay? Let's stand together. <clears throat> so here we go. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. And the disciples are thinking, that's fine, let them collapse. Okay, here we go. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks... He broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dominutha. Okay, so if you read through the chapter this week, you remember that at this point there are Pharisees who come asking Jesus questions. 
because they're testing him. And they say, what sign are you going to give us from heaven? And Jesus says, I'm not giving you a sign. And he got in the boat with his disciples and he left. And once again, we see the principle that we've seen before is that seeking Jesus for the sake of the sign usually doesn't get the results that someone may want. But seeking Jesus for who he is oftentimes results in, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So it's another example, I think, of, of Jesus rebuking the unbelief of the Pharisees. They are determined not to believe who he is. Okay, so little distance from that, and here we go again. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? And ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? And their response was probably, uh, no. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, much like us, the word of the Lord for his people. Amen. Go ahead and sit down. Do you just sometimes think the disciples are idiots? I confess, I do. And the Holy Spirit says, yeah, yeah, you are. But I love you just like I loved them. Man. Those questions from Jesus. Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes to see but fail to see but... Ears but fail to hear, don't you remember? Do you think his disciples were squirming? Yes. Let's not forget, as we were reminded, this is not the first time that Jesus has done this, right? We didn't look at the story in Mark 6, but it was just two chapters ago. And we don't have an exact timeline, but we're not talking years ago. We're talking weeks, maybe months. Really? So Jesus shows compassion for these people and wants to feed them. And you might think that an astute follower of Jesus who'd seen him feed 5,000 people not that long ago might be expectant. Whoa! Jesus, I've got an idea. I remember what you did back there. But no. 
where would we get enough bread to feed this crowd in this remote place? <laughs> Seriously? Oh my gosh. You know, it's, it's also just worth noting for kind of a fun FYI, and you've probably heard this before, that in both stories, Mark records only the number of men who were fed. That does not mean that women and children were not fed. It just means that they aren't counted. And again, first century culture, my apologies, ladies, you are important. Just not important in that culture. So the numbers of people are probably quite higher. You know, most, most commentators and scholars agree that, you know, 5,000 could have easily been 10,000, factoring in the women and the children. You know, 4,000, again, doubled quite easily. So let's notice two details right at the beginning that I, that I think are really significant to this story, and I, I've mentioned one. Jesus has compassion on these people because they have no food. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't bring food with them, but they have run out of food. Which calls attention to the second detail. They had been with Jesus for three days. What's up with these pagans? Following after Jesus. Three days they have been with him. Now, in, in the Hebrew fashion of counting in that first century, it didn't necessarily mean three full 24-hour days. If an event went into a third day, it may have only been a part of that third day, but it's still counted as three days. What Mark is communicating to us is that, that these folks had been with Jesus for a full 24 hours and parts of two other days. Maybe three full 24 hours. Either way, these folks want to be with Jesus. They, they, are, they are with him. And they're in this remote place, sleeping out under the stars, earnest about knowing Jesus and, and, and more about him. Mark doesn't tell us if there were any miracles done with this crowd prior to the feeding. So we could assume that it was just, it was just Jesus and, and rumor of who he was and his teachings that are attracting these people. He had compassion on this crowd, predominantly Gentiles because of the region where they are. So, the million dollar question, as I have sort of scoffed at a little bit, is why didn't the disciples anticipate that he was up to something? Why didn't they mention the previous? Well, Jesus, we don't have to find bread in this remote place. We know what you can do. I'm suspicious, I don't know for sure, that it had something to do with the ethnicity of the folks that they were with. Yeah. Grace, grace is certainly a mystery. We've said that a lot at Applewood. 
Grace is also irritating. Not Grace Wallace. Grace Wallace is a delight. Just clarifying. <laughs> grace is irritating because isn't it just like God to show grace to someone who doesn't deserve it? Look in the mirror! <laughs> but, but, but that's how we are. We don't want to be, but that's how we can easily be. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sinful and I know that Jesus saved me from my sins and in my theological head, I, I know all the language. I know that that's right and that, that I was undeserving. But doggone it, I can think of folks who are even more undeserving than me. And that's just where our heads and our hearts go. So, what does Jesus do? He does a whopper of a miracle again. And then a short time later, the disciples are being grilled by Jesus, and he zeroes in on some of the numbers. Can we put the next slide up, Rachel? Okay, we, we read this earlier. When I, Jesus says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? How many did they say? Okay. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, that was just a few you know, hours perhaps before, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? And they answered? Seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? So there's your question. What did Jesus want his disciples to understand? See what your neighbor thinks. Well, I sure hope you all are talking about this question. There's just a lot of buzzing going on here. This is good. What's the buzz? All right. Got some ideas? What? Craig, this is the easiest one ever? <laughs> Cheater. <laughs> you actually pay attention to the worship order? <laughs> Thank you. Lee, what do you think? Mm -hmm. Oh, he sure is. He talks about... Absolutely. Okay. Can you hear Lee, by the way? How am I going to repeat all this? <laughs> Lee thinks that it's metaphorical because John, in his gospel, immediately after feeding 5,000, talks about being, I am, says, I am the bread of life, bread from heaven. So, 12? Yep. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Did you hear that? Apostles are picking up the broken body of Jesus. Twelve represents the twelve apostles. And, and distributing it to others. And the seven? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Grecian and the Hellenistic. Okay. So did you get the part about the seven? The seven elders or deacons in Acts, when there was a dispute between the Grecian and Hellenistic Jews that their, their widows weren't being taken care of, and so they were called to, to distribute the bread to those who were not receiving bread. Again, a metaphorical reference to the broken body of Christ being distributed to others. Okay. What do you think? Oh, they do. Yeah. Okay, we can go home. No. <laughs> Good answer. Good. I like that too. What else? Anyone else? All right. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Have... Have faith in what God has already done instead of 
continually looking for a new sign, as the Pharisees would have done. Ali's linking these two together and saying, Jesus, Jesus is saying, look at what I've done. Look what I've done. You don't, you don't need more signs. Karen, you wanted to comment? Because he was a snake. Yeah. Or, or the pastor who teaches on a Sunday morning in the church. Don't be misled. Discern. Isn't this a great story? Really? Okay, okay. Let's talk about the number. Oh, Greg. Somebody get the wood. What he provides and the leftovers from that are good for everyone. Let's, let's just talk for, for a few minutes about the numbers and the baskets. Just because I think it makes the story so interesting. And, and, and Lee made some reference to this and, and, and others did as well. I will be the first one to say that, that we need to be overly cautious. Overly cautious? Cautious anyway. Yeah, let's be cautious about numerology. The study of numbers. That is, spiritualizing their meanings. There are places where I think we have permission to do that. There are times, though, in Scripture when, strangely enough, numbers, numbers are just numbers. But there are also times when they can mean something more. They are, they are real, perhaps in the context, but they also point to something other than the number itself. In the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, we are given two numbers that probably fall into that category, and, and they have been mentioned. That number 12. 12 baskets filled with leftover broken bread and fish that came from the feeding of the 5,000. As best we can tell, when he performed that miracle, he and the disciples were right in the midst of thoroughly Jewish territory. And the Jews present would have heard that number 12 because it is all through the Old Testament referring to the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then, of course, there are the, in the New Testament, there are the 12 that are chosen by Jesus. So you've got the Old Testament, Israel, chosen to be the people of God and light to the world. In the New Testament, we've got the original 12 followers chosen by Jesus to make him known to the world. He feeds them with physical food and I think there is a reference here, as Lee pointed out, uh, or at least an allusion, because John ties the two together with Jesus being the bread from heaven, the bread of life. Come down from heaven. He is the Messiah come to save and be life for his chosen people. And there is, there is more than enough of him to go around. And then he asked the question, when I fed the 4,000, how many baskets of leftovers were filled? The answer is seven. Seven, as some of you pointed out, is the number of, of perfection or completion. It sometimes is understood as the number of fullness. We have seven days of creation. The seventh day in the sab is the Sabbath, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine in Egypt. Israel arts, you know, marched around Jericho for seven days, and on the seventh day they did it seven times. You get the idea. The, the number seven in Scripture points to the idea of completion or oftentimes fulfillment. And in this predominantly Gentile region, 
the number of leftover baskets is seven. Now, here's where I think it gets kind of interesting. There are two Greek words for basket that Mark uses. The one he uses in Mark 6 for the leftovers to the Jews in the Jewish territory is a word that means a basket about the size of, of a backpack. A basket that folks would take to market and fill with the needs that they have from the market on that day. So, decent size, probably with straps so that it could be worn over a shoulder. The word that he uses for basket with the feeding of the 4,000? What do you think? It's a different word. Let me show you. Don't go away. Something along those lines. Yeah. It, uh, in, in Acts chapter 9, when the Apostle Paul was in trouble with the people of Damascus and the Jews were so mad that they wanted to kill him, they let him down in a basket at night from the wall of the city so that he could sneak away and escape. It's that word. Is that interesting? So suddenly, here's Jesus in this predominantly Gentile region, and he uses a word that is for a basket that some commentators say larger than that because Paul was able to fit in it when they let him down over the wall. That is an abundance of goodness. Now, can we make the case for this? Does Scripture give us permission to interpret these things in that way? Well, the numbers for sure, I think we have permission to, to maybe understand in the way that, that we have. Baskets, maybe, maybe a stretch. But the reality is, there are two Greek words, and the one that Mark deliberately uses to describe the leftovers from the feeding of the 4,000 Gentile territory, those stinking, disgusting Gentiles, is one that is big enough to hold, I don't know how much bread and, and fish could fit in there, times seven, fulfillment, completion. Jesus, I think, is teaching his disciples then and his disciples now that there will come a day when the gospel has gone to all who need to hear the gospel. And there will be those who profess faith in Christ and respond to him from every tribe and nation and people group and, and ethnic group and every tongue and language. It's that vision that John sees of Revelation, of heaven, excuse me, Revelation 3 and 4. Christ's heart for the Gentiles was not just incidental or secondary. 
It was a driving force in his life. So, all my fellow Gentiles, with the exception of perhaps a few, how are we responding in our lives in this Lenten season to the abundant, overflowing, huge grace of God in our lives as a result of what Jesus has done. I think as we come to the communion table this morning, my prayer is is that we will remember something that we know but easily forget in this broken world in which we live. Jesus came to bring us Life that we did not have and could not have without Him. And not only is He sufficient for doing that task, but the life that He provides is abundant life that is available to all. And it seems to me that we can be like those first disciples and quickly, maybe even too easily, forget the life that Jesus has given us because because we have agendas that are about us and an agenda about who we want Jesus to be for us sometimes, or we can surrender that agenda and we can repent of that, change that, and be more intentional about desperately seeking out Jesus like the hungry Gentiles in this story and experience the abundant life of salvation that he has provided for all. Finding him to be more than enough for us and everyone else. So as the praise team comes forward this morning, I'd like us to just take a a couple of minutes, just silent prayer, and just prepare ourselves for receiving once again this reminder and this amazing grace that is made available at this table for us. Let's pray together quietly. Oops. Sorry, Mark. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, many times you just shook the paradigm of those first followers of your son Jesus as the life that he brought in himself to this earth just collided big time with their values and their expectations. (sighs) Heavenly Father, we, we have times when we need you to do that for us as well. Would you in these moments that we come to this table, speak clearly into our lives about the the nature of this sacrifice. This life that Jesus came and lived and died in order to make us children of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, meet us, we pray at this place. Encourage 
surprise, convict, remind. Spirit of God, have your way with us. In these moments we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.